Ohio Mysteries. That's a clip from With This Change, an original song by Through It All, a rock metal band out of Piketon, Ohio. Through It All is our featured musical artist this week, and if you stick around to the end of the podcast, we'll play the whole song for you and tell you a little bit more about this special Ohio talent. Right now, let's throw another log on the fire, campers. It's time for a new mystery. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with me is our researcher and storyteller, Paula Schleiss, an award-winning journalist who spent 30 years telling these kinds of stories for the Akron Beacon Journal. Hey, everybody. Paula, what have you got for us tonight? Well, Steve, there's a chance there is a 94-year-old man out there somewhere who has no idea he was the subject of a nationally infamous kidnapping. Now, this is a youngster who was taken from his front yard in Orville, Ohio, in 1928. And believe it or not, the Orville Police Department still has this case assigned to a detective. They even took DNA from his 90-year-old sister just last year, in case they ever have the chance to solve this one. Wow. I guess it's human nature to want an answer and not give up until you got one, but 1928... How could a kidnapping from 90 years ago still warrant such interest? I think part of it stems from the belief of authorities and the boy's own family that he probably survived his ordeal and possibly grew up to live a full life never knowing where he came from. Also, this case riveted an entire country. It made headlines from California to Maine, from Florida to Texas. Newspapers in London followed every twist and turn. And holy cow, were there twists and turns. Half a century after it happened, I still find reporters referring to it as Ohio's most sensational unsolved mystery. Huh. So you're saying if Nancy Grace was around in 1928, she would have been all over this? I promise you, this this story would have paid her bills for a long time. And it's no wonder. This case was really provocative. Not only do you have the image of this sweet-faced little boy and the heart-rending thought of a little red wagon that he'd been playing with left abandoned in his front yard while the Christmas tree is still gleaming inside his house. But then you've got this colorful lineup of mobsters and bootleggers. Okay, so 1928, this is prohibition, but what would mobsters and bootleggers have to do with this little boy? Well, you're going to have to stick with me to the end of the story to understand how they have everything and possibly nothing to do with this little boy. (laughs) That's a cryptic riddle if I ever heard one. I also want to remind our listeners of a new weekly feature we've been doing called Armchair Detective. After Paula has done telling us his story, we've pre-selected a listener to share their thoughts and theories on this case. But first, 
We need the facts of this case. Paula, where do we begin? Well, let's start on December 27, 1928. So we're talking just two days after Christmas. And four-year-old Melvin Horst, he's outside playing with neighbor Bobby Evans, and they're playing with a new red wagon in a vacant lot just about a half block down the street. And at about 5.30 p.m., little Melvin turns to Bobby and says, Goodbye, Bobby. I got to go home now. And little Melvin walks off into oblivion. He will never be seen again, at least not by any of his loved ones. Huh. So at dinner time, Melvin's dad, Raymond Horst, comes home from work. And he and Melvin's uh, older brother, eight-year-old Ralph, you know, they sit down at the table. They're getting ready for dinner. And the mom, Zora, she goes to the yard to call out for Melvin, but there's no response. So you're a father, Steve. At point, this point, what do you do next? Oh, I am... Going outside, I'm looking around, I'm calling his name as loud as I can, obviously. Right. Well, obviously that's what they do, but the image that stops them in their tracks is when they go outside, that little red wagon is sitting in the front yard. Melvin should be with it, but there's no sign of him. And there is no time to waste. This is winter, it's cold, dark has already descended. No place for a four-year-old. No. Now... Amber Alert is a new concept for cell phones, but it is not a new idea. Orville has its own Amber Alert in 1928. Really? Yes. Just three hours after Melvin's absence is noted by his family, the town rings the fire bell. And that is the signal for every able-bodied man to assemble, and they do. They abandon their dinners, and they go gather at the town center to see what the emergency is. And when they hear Melvin is missing, they immediately launch into a massive search, carrying torches and lamps. And over the next few days, they will march through streets and yards and vacant lots. They'll drag ponds and creeks. They'll sort through stacks of railroad ties. They'll send teams in to check abandoned coal mines. When searchers come across a couple of tramps loitering near the town limits, they'll haul them in for questioning. Huh. Meanwhile, Raymond Horst, he's doing his part, and he's trying to get some ethereal help as well. He visits a fortune teller, and the fortune teller tells him, don't worry, Melvin is safe, and he'll be returned just as mysteriously as he disappeared. Now, people, they're wondering, what would the motive be for someone to take this little boy out of his yard? The family has no money to speak of, so a ransom's out of the question, unless... Could the boy have been mistaken as the son of his neighbor, Irvin Willsworth, who was a wealthy manufacturer? Melvin's dad, Raymond, he's a humble roofer with no known enemies, so it couldn't be that. Unless, could someone be trying to get back at Melvin's uncle, Roy Horst, who is no less than the local marshal and frequently tangles with local bootleggers? Wow. Local civic groups, they are chipping in reward money. They want this thing solved. Orville Village Council, they meet and they vote to hire Detective Ora Slater. He's living in Cincinnati. He is renowned for having solved some tough murder cases. He has his own page on Wikipedia. 
Really? So, or a so, Slater. Uh, or Slater. Okay. Or so, a O-R-A Aura? Slater. Slater. S-L-A-T-E-R. So On page. They're, they're, this is already big news by then, obviously. Oh, the very next day. Oh, very next day. The very next day. As a matter of fact, when I started looking at newspaper clippings, I had to keep filtering out, you know, Nebraska and, and Texas and huh. London and trying to just get down to the local newspapers because it's huge news. And locally... The authorities, uh, they're going to start rounding up these local rum runners and anyone else who had experiences with Marshall Roy Horst for questioning, because their theory right away is, okay, maybe revenge is, is the thing, and maybe the kidnappers thought the little boy was Roy's boy and not his nephew. And it makes me wonder if this is what gives these bootleggers the idea to start using Melvin's disappearance to get each other into trouble. Oh. We got a big mess coming. Sounds like it. This leads to our first red herring. We got an eight-year-old boy by the name of Junior Hannah. Oh, he's going to become infamous through this. He goes to the police and he says, I know who did it. I was playing with Melvin and I had just left him when Arthur Arnold, he's the 17-year-old son of another bootlegger named Elias Arnold, came to him and said, would you send Melvin over to the Arnold house? And then later, when Melvin left, he walked down an alley in the direction of the Arnold house, and Arthur Arnold and his brother-in-law, Bascom McHenry, were in that alley waiting for him. They offered him an orange, and the boy went into the home, and a little bit later, Junior Hannah says, I saw them coming out carrying him. Arthur and his dad, Elias, they put him into a green car and they drove away. Now, this caught the attention of the cops because someone else in the community had reported that a green car had stopped them to ask for directions to Mansfield and that the car was driven by a man who had a woman in the back seat who was comforting a crying child. So, with that little bit of information and absolutely no evidence, only this tale of this eight-year-old boy, they arrest not only Dad Elias, son Arnold, and son-in-law Bascom, they haul in Elias's other son, William, and Elias's daughter, Dorothy. From an eight-year-old testimony here. Right. And very quickly, a grand jury indicts them all, all five members of the Arnold family on a count of child stealing. Huh. So emotions are just running really high for everyone. The family, the townspeople, the police, even the media. Here's a paragraph from the January 3rd, 1929 edition of the Akron Beacon Journal about the scene at the Orville Jail after the Arnold family is arrested and brought in. And I'll quote the newspaper. Newspaper men trying to talk to the sheriff were ordered from the premises at the point of a gun. A crowd was attracted by the commotion, and Deputy Pontius waded into the group, swinging a mace. Two reporters and three bystanders were struck. Swinging a mace? The crowd became enraged, and a concerted rush upon the officers appeared imminent when the officers withdrew into the jail. 
So you can see, it's just a week after this Swing boy it. It's like Dungeons and Dragons here. Somebody rolled a 20 die. <laughs> it's uh, high, high anxiety. People are on edge. And even beyond Orville, people are a bit hysterical. There's a, uh, I found a news report of a woman. She was driving through Seville, which is a village in the neighboring Medina County, when she saw a little boy playing in the yard and decided he was Melvin. And according to the news report, she pulled up to the curb and exclaimed, it's the missing Orville boy. I'm going to take him right to his mother. And apparently (laughs) this threatened abduction was only stopped because the boy's aunt and uncle happened to be passing by at the very moment and interceded. And even then, the woman would not give up until they lined up witnesses to, to say yes this boy belongs to this family. It's not Melvin. Right. Leave my kid alone, woman. So, be, meanwhile, that could have been another tragedy. Right. Meanwhile, people, uh, police are searching the Arnold house. So, they scoop out some ashes from the furnace in the Arnold house. And they announce they have found what appear to be human bones. Of course, a Worcester doctor will later tell them those aren't human bones. Right. Uh, but not before that story makes big headlines. Oh, and so this is spreading around. They, oh, found, yeah. they might have found the body of this it's four-year-old. It's all feeding into this frenzy. Other detectives announced they found a bloody hatchet with blonde human hair on it. And, of course, later they're going to find out that's not, that's not true. And then a detective, Stevens, he's quoted in the press saying, Dorothy Arnold, that's Elias's daughter who was arrested, she was close to cracking. Quote, if I could have had her for just a few more minutes, I'll bet she would have confessed. When I grilled her, she said, my husband and I are innocent, but I'm afraid the boys are in for it. Then, when we took her back to her cell, she passed by her father's cell. And she said, they wanted to tell me, she said to her father. And the old man Arnold said, tell hell, tell nothing. Tell hell, tell nothing. What a great saying. I am going to use that. Of course, we have no way of knowing if she said those things. And if she did, what in the world she would have meant? Because as you still, you are going to soon learn, the Arnolds were innocent. They had nothing to do with this. But it doesn't matter right now. Somebody has to pay for Melvin's disappearance. Right, and they're, they're convenient right there. They're, they're, they're convenient. And Elias Arnold and son Arthur Arnold go to trial March of 1929. They will be found guilty solely on the testimony of the eight-year-old boy, oh, Junior Hannah, and they get sent to prison. Little kids scare me sometimes. <laughs> you know, they can just... <laughs> Well, that is, that's some swift justice. Right. I mean, we're talking less than three months after the boy was snatched. We have had the investigation, the trial, the conviction, and they're now in prison. So um, they serve eight months. And, I, you know, short, long story short, they are acquitted after eight months. So this, this kid must have been told dependent oh, I'm gonna, on them? I'm going to get Okay, because, I mean... Oh, yeah. Uh, these, I'm getting This, this kid should be working. I mean, child labor laws are ruining this country, you know? <laughs> he should have been, been, been doing something in his sweatshop. He should have been helping his dad bootleg. <laughs> right. Yes. So three days after the Arnolds are released... Oh, this one this breaks my heart. So the Melvin family... Melvin's family receives an anonymous letter... And it promises that if no interference is made by the police, the boy will be returned for $100. Mm. 
Mm. So that's a lot back then. That's a lot, and yeah, but but within their means. Yeah. And they feel it's sincere. So the instructions in the letter are followed to the T. Yeah, I, I would think so. It's not like they ask for one million dollars, yeah. you know. Oh, and they're desperate uh-huh. for any possibility of, of getting Melvin back. So they, Melvin's family, his mom, his dad, 10-year-old Ralphie now, and uh, his new infant sister, LG. They've had a, had a new baby in the family since this all started. They're sitting at their home at the designated hour. They're leaping at every headlight that comes down the street. Uh, but Melvin is never brought home, uh. and no one claims the damp, wrinkled $100 bill they're clutching in their hand, ready to give to kidnappers. So there's not police sitting behind the house? They are really... The stories I found did not indicate that the police were there. Okay. So they were really sincere. They really... Okay. They were ready. They were were going to do whatever it took. So we we don't have kidnappers. It is, however, time for some new suspects. Okay. Let's line them up. Let's bring them in. So Junior Hannah. He's guilty. The (laughs) eight-year-old. He's guilty. Okay. He goes to police again with a brand new story. He says he took Melvin to a garage in Orville where a fella named Earl Connold killed him. What? Connold is a, a railroad man and a drinking companion of Junior Hannah's dad, Charles. This little kid. So Earl, he's taken into custody. And he t- tells police, wait a minute. The real killer is Junior's own dad, Charles. Charles Hanna, he's a bakery driver. He plays a banjo for the local country orchestra. He is also a bootlegger, and apparently, in his spare time, he likes to kidnap kids. So, in his Charles, spare time. Charles, Charles Hanna, he gets hauled in. Okay? So, the two men, they're throwing accusations at each other right there. They almost get into a fist fight right in the police station. They got to pull them apart. The cops, they're leaning more heavily on Hanna during this argument. And they even talk about how they took turns grilling him so that he could not fall asleep. So the detectives are, are interrogating him, and then they're going off for naps, and new ones are coming in, and they're keeping the questioning going for 36 hours. That's amazing they use these tactics back then still. Oh, yeah. That's... I wonder if they had, like, the light bulb over his head. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe. Oh, it's like straight out of a movie. And Hannah, Charles Hannah, he decides... He is so sleepy that he's going to confess so he can go get some shut-eye. So he says, okay, I killed Melvin to get back at Marshall Horst. Uh, I thought he was Melvin's dad. Um, The chief was interfering with my bootlegging business, so I popped him on the head with a a four-by-four and stuffed him in a sack, and I buried him in my backyard and covered it up with some tin cans. So, okay, well, this is easy to prove. So the authorities uh, go to Hannah's backyard, and they start turning up the soil, and there's no body. Oh, he just wanted some sleep. He wanted some Sing sleep. Sing it. He got us. Well, they go back to Hannah. They wake grill him, him some more. <laughs> wake him, wake sure. up. We're not done with you. Wake up. I'm not even sure that he's, they allowed him to sleep yet. They were like, wait a minute. We'll be right back. We're going to go get the body. And he changes his story again. So, okay, now... Now we've got these two Italians in Akron, he says. Uh, they wanted this boy dead or alive. So I bumped him on his noggin, and these Italians arrive, and they place the boy's body in the rumble seat of their car, and they took him away. Rumble seat? The rumble seat. Okay. The... I don't know the rumble seat. The rumble seat. What is a rumble seat? It's in the back. Okay. Uh, Google it. I don't have a rumble seat. 
<laughs> no, they don't make rumble seats anymore. Okay. But they stuck the kid in the rumble seat. They took him away. Hannah said he was paid 25 gallons of liquor for his trouble, and he named a bootlegger in Akron who had hired him, Tony LaFatch. 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 And he adds, I don't know if the boy was dead. I didn't mean to kill him, but I was too drunk to know for sure. So the cops go round up Tony LaFatch. So now there are three men in jail waiting for this to be sorted out. We have three men in jail and a whole family that's already out of jail who was acquitted. Yeah, we're up okay. to eight people. And we're how long? How, how far is this into, since he's been missing? Let's see. It has been over a year. Over a year, okay. Yeah, All over right. a year because the Arnolds uh, served eight months. It took them three months to get convicted. And then, yeah, so we're, we're talking over a year. Okay. So all of this hits the streets, newspapers, they announced the latest twist with this bold-faced font that was more appropriate for declarations of war. And the newsboys hit the streets, waving papers and yelling, extra, extra, horse boy murdered, Junior Hannah's own father confesses. So this confession is out there. People are ready to go lynch him. And, you know, with that hard-fought confession out of the way, the detectives, they let Hannah get some sleep. Finally. I get to go to sleep. Yeah. And they go catch up on their sleep themselves, and everybody wakes up, and they're all fresh, and Charles Hannah says, you know... Psych. Psych. I just wanted to sleep. I really just wanted to sleep. And I didn't mind making Marshall Horse think that he was to blame, but the truth is, Connell didn't do it. I didn't do it. Tony LaFatch didn't do it. Oh, and you know what? The Arnolds didn't do it, do it because I stuck my son on that. I goaded my own son into lying about seeing them with Melvin uh, because of some personal vendetta against the Arnolds, who, by the way, are family members of Charles Hanna as well as rival bootleggers. Uh. So he, he's behind the little boy. He was blaming. behind it. Poor, poor Junior Hannah. Because I have an eight-year-old, and my eight-year-old, can, he, can, he can spin some yarn, man. If you told him to go to the cops and say, uh, Uncle Tom did it. He would absolutely turn you in, Uncle Tom. <laughs> well, so see how easy that is. Right. This is why you do not rely on the testimony of eight-year-olds exactly. without any other evidence. In the end, you've got eight people who spent at least some time in jail for Melvin's disappearance. Um, most authorities concluded they were simply using the situation to try to get their competitors in trouble. At this point, everyone seems on the verge of collapse. It was said newspaper men who were following the case for days were passing out in public. They needed to get some sleep. They needed sleep. And Orville Mayor Wigand suffered a nervous breakdown. Huh. This is big stuff. This is big. Did you ever read at all about the Lindbergh baby kidnapping? Oh, yeah. Okay, so that's many years ahead of this. Okay. This is the Lindbergh baby kidnapping before the Lindbergh baby kidnapping. It sounds like it. It sounds like it is world news here. It's huge. So actually, um, uh, in 1940, the Ohio governor himself, John Bricker, he ordered an an intensive investigation of what was then a 12-year-old mystery because the working theory was that Melvin was probably still alive and in the hands of someone who was afraid to return him because of all the hysteria and national attention. And, well, interestingly, the FBI, they weren't allowed to help at all. Why? 
Well, back then, there was no evidence Melvin had, been, had crossed state lines. And at that time, that was the law. The FBI, FBI was not allowed to be involved unless there was evidence of a state line being crossed. That will be changed with the Lindbergh baby kidnapping, but not at this time. So the local authorities and the state authorities, on their own. they're on their own. So the town of Ovorvo, you got about 5,000 residents there listening in vain for years, waiting for the short blast of that fire siren that would bring them to, to the town center and say, Melvin's back. And the $1,600 that everybody chipped in for the reward was never claimed. Now, in 1943, during World War II, a reporter caught up with Melvin's mother, Zora Horst, and she and her husband had moved to Akron and took a job at B.F. Goodrich Company. She said she wanted to work at a plant producing equipment for the war because she knew her son was 19 now and likely serving in the military, just as her other son, Ralph. He was an Army private yeah, in North Africa. I was going to say Africa. that's about 15, 15 years later. Okay. And she, she wanted to do... So her, they other both, son, her other son was in the military, too. Yeah, he was in North Africa okay. in, in the Army. And she and her husband, they wanted to do what they could in, in a way to protect their missing son in case he was over there serving. So, Rosie the Riveter. There was, a, there was no evidence that Melvin had died, and her mother's instinct told her he was still alive. Uh, Marshall Horst, he believed that whoever took Melvin wanted to return him, but the spotlight was just too hot. Um, the state thought that. Um, one theory is that if mobsters were involved, if there was some vendetta against Horst and they wanted to scare him, it might have gotten so hot for them that they put Melvin on a boat to Italy. And maybe he lived out his entire life with some Italian family. Okay. So Zora, she had kept that family Christmas tree up for three years after Melvin's disappearance before finally taking down. And I know it wasn't the same tree. They okay. didn't have uh, artificial trees back then. They okay, were drying gonna... out, losing their needles, but they kept replacing them. And they made sure one stayed up in that living room for three solid years. Probably, probably keeping his toys or something, you know. They, they did. They, they, for three years, they kept them out. I think they kept them right under the tree. And Melvin's dad, Raymond, he kept getting leads for decades, and he followed each and every one, all wild goose chases. It, at the time of that World War II story, he had just returned from Arkansas in a backwoods shack that revealed nothing but tragedy in Still someone searching. else's house. Still searching. There was a grandma caring for the illegitimate son of a granddaughter. Another time, Kentucky authorities uh, asked him to come down and, and look at a boy that had been shot dead by some bootleggers. And that wasn't Melvin. Um, he had a, they had a boy come to the house and say, I'm your son. And he wasn't. And there was another time his mother, Zora, saw somebody as an adult and thought, oh, my God, that looks like my son. And went up to him. And it, it wasn't. I, I think the guy even had to prove that he didn't have this burn scar on his thigh. Well, how, how, how heartbreaking. It is. It is. And, I mean, the, the whole town's still waiting for an answer. And so here we are, 2018, Ohio's most sensational kidnapping is still a mystery. And you know, you know how the Golden State Killer in California was recently caught using that genealogical right. DNA? Right, and just to, just to let you know, last week they found another serial rapist out there using the DNA. The NorCal yeah. rapist. Yes, yes. So for our listeners, if you don't know how this works... People can take a swab of their cheek and voluntarily give their DNA 
to a place like Ancestry.com or um, what's that other one? 23andMe. 23andMe, right. And, um, and then they give you your DNA back. That's private. So far, nobody has gotten that information. But you can take that DNA and upload it yourself to this website where it will compare your DNA to everybody else who volunteers theirs, and you can start making connections to people. It will come back and say, here's a a, a person, we're not naming them, but this person is your first cousin. So if the two of you want to meet, exchange an email here, or this person is your sibling, or this person is your uncle, and people are finding long-lost relatives this way. And I, you know, I gotta, I'm gotta wonder if someday somebody will upload their DNA. If if Melvin lived to a grand old age and reproduced, had a family of his yeah, own, it's gonna be in the line somewhere. It, you know, you know, if it shows up, it could be a hit someday. So that would be an interesting story. It would be, and you know what? It's it's a story that's gonna have some legs for a long time because that DNA is not going anywhere. That database is only growing. And as more and more people volunteer their DNA to that genealogical database, every year there are more opportunities to see if there's something out there. Hmm. So, so Well, I'm not gonna do that. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna upload my DNA because I don't want them to catch you. Uh, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> thank you. Please protect me. All right. So Well, that's all I got for you, Steve. In that case, it's time to throw the story over to our armchair detective. With us tonight is Josh Gordon of Barberton, Ohio. And as a bonus, we have Josh's nine-year-old son, Caleb, with us to offer up some ideas. Thanks for being with us tonight, Josh and Caleb. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Before we get Josh to share his insights with us, Steve, I can't wait to tell our listeners that Josh is the guy who came up with the idea for the armchair detective segment in the first place. And not only that, he's the one who suggested featuring Ohio musicians for our intros. So Josh, thank you for that. We have been getting some great feedback. And I got to say, Ohio Mysteries is more than just a podcast now. It feels like a community. It is a community. It's a community that's probably a lot larger than you even may know because there's so many people I know that listen to it at the same time. So you may have one download, but there may be 10 people listening. Well, we owe a lot of that to you. And, you know, I'm not surprised to hear you've, you have such great ideas. Josh is the owner of Full Spectrum Marketing, which is headquartered in Akron. Josh, tell us a little bit about your company. Uh, we're an advertising agency that focuses on digital marketing specifically. We build purposeful websites to help you build your business or organization. And then we drive traffic to those websites with search and social and PR and every type of marketing that's required to build an organization. Well, frankly, that sounds like a perfect background for helping us figure out what might have happened to Melvin Horst. And Caleb, what are your credentials, sir? Since I'm a nine-year-old kid, I think that I can get into the head of that of the eight-year-old junior Hannah. Oh, I think you're going to be perfect for that. All right. Well, let's just jump right on in. Uh, Josh, had you ever heard of this case before? No, I never had. Here's the money question. So we're going we're to stop it. We're going to jump right to the end, and then we're going to go back. Do you think Melvin was killed, or do you think he was kidnapped and went on to live a perfectly happy life somewhere else? That's a very hard question to answer 
I want to think that he went on to live happily somewhere else. So I'll just go with what I hope happened. Well, you, you know the saying, where there's smoke, there's fire. You know, I know these bootleggers were turning each other in over this case, probably trying to get each other in trouble. But I really do kind of like the theory that maybe somebody was out to punish the marshal, his uncle, and Melvin was a tool in that. What do you think? Yeah, I think it's interesting that the marshal lived with Melvin and his family for several months before he moved a couple of blocks away and became very fond of Melvin and kind of became pals, it seems like. And I think that anyone in that neighborhood or in that area where he was also enforcing prohibition was able to notice that Melvin was fond of his uncle and his uncle was fond of him. And if looking to cause him pain or strife or knock the marshal off his game, targeting Melvin makes a lot of sense, especially with the tactics that a lot of those mobsters used at that time. Well, and the idea that they were living together, I could also see people who didn't know the family well mistaking him for his son and thinking they were even getting more of a, of a prize in kidnapping his son. But if not necessarily the Arnolds or the Hannah or Connold or LaFatch, what about another bootlegger? I mean, it, it could have been somebody that didn't come up during this crisis. It could have been another bootlegger. Uh, my wife's theory is that a mom in, dis in distress two days after Christmas maybe had a child pass away or something like that, was driving along the street with her husband and saw a four-year-old playing in a vacant lot with a couple of friends, which I have a four-year-old. I can't imagine a four-year-old just like playing a few doors down <laughs> alone without an adult. But I guess that was happening in this case. It was a different time. And uh, should that happen, a mother in that sort of situation might be compelled to grab the kid up and drive away. Who knows? Well, that seems like it would be the simplest um, solution to this. Some you know, distraught couple just went by and saw that the kid was cute as a button and just said, you know what, it's Christmas, we're emotional, let's grab this kid. And the green car. Mm -hmm. Do you remember the green car? The green car with a rumble seat, absolutely. The odd thing to me was that the toy wasn't taken with it. The red truck the red or wagon. the red wagon. Uh, that would... To me, seemed like if you were taking that child and you wanted to love and comfort that child and kidnap them in that sort of mindset, that you wouldn't take his toy from him or force him to leave his toy behind. So for every theory you explore, there's a counter theory. It's a right. true mystery. Unless it was awkward. If you have to move really quick, it might be a lot easier just to open that car door, snatch the kid. Not worry about trying to get that in. I, I do like that idea. And actually, part of me is like, I hope that's what happened, because then I think that's his best chance for having gone on to live in a loving family and, and grow up, if not you know, with his own at least. He survived. I'm interested to know what happened with bootleggers around that time after this happened. Because if the activity for rum running and so forth really tapered off, I wondered if it was because so many of those families were accusing each other, or if activity remained strong, then perhaps this situation had nothing to do with it, because maybe they were scared off or they were so busy infighting that the whole trade fell apart in Orville. Yeah, you know, that's a good point, and I hadn't thought of that, but 
Orville really seemed to be a hub for that kind of activity, especially if the people in Orville are calling attention to these Akron guys that they say they're connected with. Obviously, these aren't just people who are bootlegging out of their basement. They're part of a big operation. And with the heat that would have been put on them with this case, I mean, this case was international. It it makes me wonder what happened. I can't answer that. Now, how about that youngster, Junior Hannah? Caleb, I got a question for you. So you've got this eight-year-old boy. His dad says, I need you to go lie to the police so he can look in the face of these men in uniforms, tell a lie, tell it again to the lawyers, tell it again to the grand jury, tell it again to the judge at a trial. And then when the dad says, you know what, I need you to tell another lie, then change your mind and go back to the police and do it all over again with a different story. I don't even know an eight-year-old that could hold it together and not crack under that kind of pressure. But you're a nine-year-old. What do you think? Uh, I think I would definitely crack under pressure. Yeah. I mean, that's a lot of spotlights on you. Do you know, without naming anybody, do you know an eight- or nine-year-old that could pull that off? I don't think so. That's a lot of pressure. That's a lot of pressure. Wow. I'm really happy to hear that, by the way. (laughs) Yay! (laughs) And Caleb, what do you think it would take for a kid to listen to his dad and do that? Do you think his dad was like mean and said, you better do this? Or do you think the dad was said, you know, if you really love me, you'll do this? Or do you think the dad said, a bike if you do this what what was you know what was the dad doing to get his kid to do it i think he bribed him with the bike bribed him with a bike maybe some money (laughs) yeah i love that okay now caleb you got to listen to the whole episode so tell me what your theory is on this case well there was this one person named earl connold he worked near a railroad track and the vacant lot that Melvin was playing in uh, was next to railroad tracks. So that's a suspicion. Oh, it is. Connell could have done it. Do you think those railroad tracks could have played a role in getting Melvin out of town fast? Maybe they could have taken him away on a railroad car. Oh, that's a, I hadn't even thought of that. That's a great idea. So Earl Connell... Um, Charles ended up going back and telling the cops, nah, he didn't. But do you think maybe Charles was lying and and Earl really did? I think Charles might have been lying, but will we ever know? We'll never know. You are very smart. So, Josh, I got to ask you, what are your thoughts about our system of justice at that time? So they arrested, right off the bat, five people of one family and convicted two of them on no evidence and only the testimony of an eight-year-old. Could that happen today? I think the emotions of the situation were very high. And the notion that uh, you referred to it as an Amber Alert in the episode, but the notion that everybody in the town would not only come together three hours afterward, but would also contribute money to have a pool of $1,600 available for a reward should he be returned. To me, that tells you it's a community that cares very much about acting quickly. So in that regard, if the trial is there, if the jury is of peers in that area, I could see the swiftness 
happen under those circumstances, especially if there are people of ill repute involved who are running rum and causing disorder in the town. It makes sense that the community would want to lock them up, even if maybe they didn't do it, but just to have them not in the town anymore. As far as if it would happen now or not, I can't imagine that would happen now just because of the amount of scrutiny and immediacy with the scrutiny that happens from media and social media. I think that there would be people chirping about injustice on both sides, and it would create a lot of attention, and I think it would be hard to get anything through a system that quickly now. When I read some of the accounts of what was going on, like the scene at the jail where, you know, members of the press are, you know, are screaming and the public is surrounded, ready to lynch one of the Arnolds, and the police officer has to come out with his mace and start swinging. It just goes to show how high emotions were. I mean, the mayor had a nervous breakdown that he contributed to this case. So definitely Orville is a town that was filling this, you know, very personally. And I guess more than anything, that could be a reason why you would just rush someone to justice to try to put some closure on it and hope that you did the right thing. But And it was fast. I mean, two days after Christmas, and then I think you said January 3rd was by the time they had grabbed him up, and then three months later they were in prison. Yeah. So that's fast by any stretch. Oh, any, yeah. Uh, count. I'm amazed at the just going through these clips, the cases I've come across where somebody has been arrested, convicted, and executed within the same year. I'm like, that... <laughs> they did not waste time back then. And the marshal was involved, too, because his family was part of it. So he was marshalling resources, I'm sure, to get swift justice as well. And that, to me, was, uh, I was telling you off air, but that, to me, was one of the things that piqued my interest, perhaps, about his involvement. Because everything moved so quickly, and he was the guy who was really in a good position to move all the pieces around and get everybody moving in one direction or another. He definitely had to have a lot of clout, even as you know, the sheriff came in and, and other law enforcement agencies participated. He clearly had to have a lot of clout in that. Uh, anything else you guys want to talk about that we haven't brought up? Um, I, just, I want to hear more about the LaFetch person, Tony mm. LaFetch. Oh, yeah, what do you? What more do you want to know about him? He intrigues you, huh? Uh, I just want to know about uh, why would he would have wanted the child. That is a good question. This guy's in Akron. How much could the Marshal of Orville really be impacting his business? Clearly, he had to have his hands in pies all over the the area. And how important could Orville have been? that somebody from Akron, a mobster from Akron, would come to Orville and choreograph the kidnapping of a kid. That is brilliant. And perhaps the next line of research would be to look into his cases and the things that he solved from a uh, just in the natural course of his job that impacted LaFetch. Because if there are a lot of cases that involve LaFetch, that would be interesting because then there'd be a connection there. Or if there was maybe an uptick in cases prosecuted that involved the fetch afterward. So yeah. maybe that's a different pass at the research, a different cut that maybe wasn't taken at the time. Isn't it fascinating that this case, I mean, it's not technically 
active, but it is open, and there's actually a detective's name assigned to it. I find that incredible, that this is not something Orville is ready to sweep under the carpet. They would love to solve this. But I don't think we solved it tonight. I think we've got some good ideas. Maybe the Orville detectives will hear us and and think, oh, I didn't think of that. So maybe we helped them along the way. (laughs) Well, thank you, Josh and Caleb, for sharing your brains with us tonight. Happy to borrow them. Thank you so much for having us on and keep up the amazing stories. All right. Well, we've got a lot more. So keep listening. We will. And that's it for tonight, campers. Thanks for joining us. Remember, if you're listening on a podcast app, hit that subscribe button. That way, all future episodes will be logged into your podcast library and waiting for you. Also, you don't have to worry if you've missed anything. And if you're on Facebook or Twitter, come follow us. Sometimes you'll get a sneak peek of what's coming next. Or we'll ask you to help decide what mysteries we should turn into stories. Check out our website on ohiomysteries.com. If you click on our Melvin Horse page, you'll find photos, news clippings, and more. Go check it out. That brings us to our featured musical artist of the week. At the start of this podcast, you heard a clip of With This Change. The band is called Through It All and features Leroy Johnson on vocals, Jeremy Varney on guitar, Andy Willing on bass, and Johnny Likens on drums. If you like your rock with a little metal, you're not alone. With This Change was the group's first single, and their video has gotten some 50,000 views on Facebook and more than 12,000 listens on YouTube. And that is awesome for a homegrown talent trying to break out. So check out their website, throughitallband.com, and you can also find them on Twitter and Instagram. Now, they don't have any scheduled performances right now because they are getting ready to head back into the studio. And I am very much looking forward to seeing where they go from here. To find the website, YouTube, and other links to our featured artists, head on over to ohiomysteries.com and click on the Featured Music tab. But right now, turn up the volume. Enjoy the full version of With This Change, and we'll see you next week for another Ohio Mystery.
I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of the new Medal of Honor podcast from Evergreen Podcasts, brought to you in partnership with the National Medal of Honor Museum. In each three-minute episode, we'll learn about a different service member who distinguished him or herself through an act of valor. We'll include stories from the Civil War to Iraq and Afghanistan, and from all branches of the military. We'll talk about service members who were overlooked for the medal at first due to their race or religion, and about those who were celebrated at the time. We'll hear stories of soldiers like Audie Murphy, future Hollywood star who mounted a burning tank to hold off German infantry in World War II. And people like Dr. Mary Edwards Walker, a Civil War Army doctor and the only woman to receive the Medal of Honor so far. Learn about these heroes and more wherever you get your podcasts.